Almost all words do have color, and nothing is more pleasant than to utter a pink word and see someone's eyes light up, and know that it is a pink word for him or her too. Gladys Tabor. Our words are paint strokes on the canvas of life. That sounds cheesy, but it's true. We create a certain picture with every word we choose, both in thinking and speaking. Our question this episode: What world are we creating with our words? Welcome to episode sixty-one of How Can I Say This, where we look to build connection and community through courageous conversations. I'm your host, Beth Bilo. A recurring theme in my work over the past twenty years has been the power of language to shape our perceptions and reality. It's a power that influences all of us, and my interest has been around how to be more conscious with that power. Among the first iterations of my business was called intentional talk, which is a phrase I still love. It's the way I was expressing、uh, the coaching concept of empowering language. And I was focused on our internal self-talk, and then by extension, the language we use externally when expressing ourselves to others. I looped out for about ten years into talking mainly about introversion and entrepreneurship, but the importance of paying attention to the words we speak and think has always been an undercurrent. And now I'm grateful to loop back and come full circle, which feels both comfortable and challenging. It's comfortable because I've already spent a lot of time thinking, speaking, and writing about language and word choices. It's challenging because society has shifted so much in the past twenty years. I mean, just think about where we were in two thousand versus today in twenty twenty. We were still six years away from Facebook and Twitter being available to the general public, and we were about seven years away from the iPhone. And so, since then, the power of language has amplified exponentially, because we can so easily transmit our thoughts to thousands with just the tap on a keyboard or a click on the phone. Back in 2000, it seemed like it was just common sense to pay attention to the words we use and how we express our opinions and ideas. And now, in 2020, it's a moral imperative. A quick reminder before I continue that you can visit howcanisaythis.com for more information on this podcast, as well as to access any links or episodes of other podcasts or other resources that I refer to on this episode. You can also access past episodes. You can subscribe and find details about how to leave a review or offer feedback. And if you find this podcast useful, I invite you to share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you're a regular listener, you know that an occasional feature of this podcast is responding to listener questions about conflict, communication, connection, and relationship building. I welcome your questions for inclusion in a future episode, and you'll find the online submission form and other instructions at howcanisaythis.com. So here's the catalyst for this episode. This past weekend, the lead teacher at my spiritual community spoke about the power of words to create worlds. I'm going to pull in some of his points and use them as a springboard for additional ideas on communicating with kindness. And before I go any further, I want to emphasize: just because I say communicating with kindness doesn't mean that we have to be that way all the time. It's not. 
about always being nice. And actually, that expression "kill them with kindness" just popped into my head, and I just find that a very ironic phrase. So it's sometimes completely appropriate to use stronger language, to use words that might incite or provoke someone. Part of what I want to do here is challenge our defaults. Our defaults are often the tough words that we use because we think they're the most effective. I want to invite us to consider alternatives that might still be effective but don't contribute to toxic energy. One of our teacher's main points was around the violence of the language that we hear every day in the news, and by extension on our social media feeds. These are words like war, terror, attack, fight. Every movement out there is a war on something, and it's framed as something positive, like the war on drugs, or something negative, such as the war on Christmas. Taken in isolation, each of these phrases might feel accurate, but if you step back and listen to the constant litany of wars that we're engaged in and fights that we're fighting, it reflects a society, at least here in the United States. I can't speak for other countries, but it reflects a society that constantly has its fists up. Ready to punch whatever it gets in its way, and that energy ends up permeating our advertising, politics, religion, the financial markets, healthcare, and just about any industry or sector that you can think of. We're always fighting or warring, struggling, hating, or attacking something. What impact? I mean, even saying all those words, I feel myself kind of tensing up. What impact does that have on our spirit? What does it do to our ability to come from love and empathy and compassion and connection? I believe it has a profound influence, and that's why we're talking about this today. These violent words that we hear so often. Become diluted and they lose their power when they're overused. It's the same as it is with profanity. When someone is using the f word in every other sentence, it loses its impact. I notice this with comedians all the time. The ones who are either insecure or early in their careers, or maybe just lazy, rely on profanity for quick laughs. The best comedians save the coarse language for more strategic moments, and they use it much more sparingly, if they even use it at all. The same goes with. Some of these other words that we hear all the time in the media, when everything is the war on, the urgency disappears. If we're always fighting, then when is there going to be space for talking or for reconciliation? This language perpetuates the us versus them narrative that fear-based people thrive on. And as I thought about that, I started to say fear-based politicians, but it goes beyond that. Us versus them plays out in families, in workplaces, and in our communities every single day. About ten years ago, or actually more like fifteen years ago, I worked at a large nonprofit that absolutely loved the us versus them dynamic. I worked in the administration building on the campus. And it was called the Death Star by those not in administration and who had their offices elsewhere on campus. Here we all are, drawn together, working for the same organization. We're drawn together with a shared passion, and we're committed to delivering a particular service to our constituents. 
We're all on the same team. We're all on the same side of the table. And yet the irresistible pull of us versus them took hold and created this unhealthy environment. And who knows what came first? And this is true anywhere where there's this kind of us versus them. Maybe they thought we were jerks, so they came up with the Death Star name. Or they thought up the name as a joke, and it became a self-fulfilling prophecy in their minds. It makes me want to step back and say, what if they hadn't ever called us the Death Star? Well, I have to admit, it's kind of funny, and I'm sure I laughed the first time I heard it. It's also an example of the power of words to create a world. It created this world where the people who were there to support them in their work became the enemy, despite all evidence to the contrary. It created an unproductive division between us. Now, you might be thinking, hey, the Death Star people need to lighten up and stop taking yourself so seriously. And there is some truth to that. We can choose to assume best intent, to think, well, it's just a way that they're letting off steam because they're frustrated with a decision, or it's a normal manifestation of our human tendency to bond over a common enemy. We, as part of the Death Star, can choose to ignore it which is often what we did. Or we could choose to confront the attitude on an individual basis through one-on-one conversation by continuing to remind them that we are all on the same team. I like to think we try to do that more often than I remember. All of that said, even if it was half-joking, that means it was still half-serious. And the half-serious part of it is what led to communication breakdowns and made it difficult to trust and respect one another. And that makes everyone unhappy, even the people who laugh about it and think that they're on the offense and that they're on the right side of the issue. Do you hear anything in that example that resonates with your own experience? Maybe you've been on the offense, calling your boss, either behind their back or to their face, a half-joking, half-serious nickname like the Terminator or Darth Vader. You might not realize it because it feels cathartic in the moment, but over time, these words become the lenses in the glasses that you can't take off. They create your world. They're how you see everything. They're like your filter. And do you really want to live in a world where your boss is Darth Vader? If there are some qualities of your boss that have led you to assign them that nickname, isn't that worth addressing on some level? Wouldn't it feel better in the long run to determine what you can control and what you can't, and then take action from there? The simple answer is yes, but that's not an easy yes. The easy thing to do would be to call them Darth Vader and move on. And maybe that's what you have to do because you need the job. Maybe there's little hope that change is possible, or you have other healthy coping strategies that you can engage in that keep your working relationship productive. And if you notice that the nickname morphs from being a way to vent in private to becoming a group activity, and if your confirmation bias kicks in and you start to only see evidence that, aha, I knew you were Darth Vader, then it's time to explore the options based on what you can control and what you can't. Now, maybe you're on the receiving end of the nickname. You know how much it can chip away at you, even if you feel mostly immune to the slight. The simple response is to ignore it. And as I said before, you can assume best intent, that it's harmless venting and they don't mean anything by it. You might tell yourself that you need to have a thicker skin and just take it as a joke. 
But you know from being on the other side, because we have all done this, whether it was with a parent, a boss, a teacher, or any authority figure in our lives. We all know that there's a grain of truth in that nickname, at least from their perspective. And that can eat away at even the thickest skinned among us. What would it look like to confront their perception directly? Can we open up a conversation saying, I've heard the nickname Darth Vader being used to describe me, and while I'm flattered that you think I have that much power, I'm not so sure that's how I want to be thought of. I don't want to represent the dark side. Can we talk about what led to that name? A little humor can lighten up the moment, and letting them know that you're trying to make things better means that they might not go on the defensive so quickly and easily. All of this is to say that the childhood comeback to somebody bullying you or calling you names of sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That's all flat out wrong. Names and words have tremendous power that stay with us long after broken bones have healed. This is the foundational message of nonviolent communication that the words we speak and the way we listen to one another can heal and connect rather than injure and divide. Violent communication in words, war, terror, attack, fight, these all activate the more primal parts of our brain and lead to less compassion, less empathy, less connection. They can compromise our ability to listen or take in information. I see that in how I've been responding to the news lately, when so many stories are framed in the language of violence, and I just can't absorb it anymore. And I know that's the language that gets readers for the papers and watchers of the news. Driving in my car the other day, I heard the song by Don Henley, I think it's from the 80s, called Dirty Laundry. And it sums up perfectly the insatiable hunger that news outlets have for negative stories and how much the public demands it. The song uses the phrase, kick them when they're up, kick them when they're down, 26 times or some variation of it. And that's the world we'd live in when we choose language that kicks people when they're up and kicks them when they're down. And we tend to love that language. There was a recent Hidden Brain episode titled Screaming into the Void, How Outrage is Hijacking Our Culture and Our Minds. And I know I've mentioned this in a previous episode. Jay Van Bavel, and I hope I'm saying his last name right, um, is a researcher and psychology professor at New York University. And he shared in that podcast episode that for every moral, emotional word that people use in a tweet, we found that it increased the rate of retweeting from other people who saw it by 15 to 20 percent. These moral, emotional words that they studied included hate, criminal, loser, greed, punish, crazy, and any profanity that you can think of. These are highly charged words that light up our brains, especially when they're used to describe someone or something with which we disagree. We can choose to stop using those words casually and decide to use them only when they're true, if someone is technically a criminal, for instance. You might be thinking, well, that's no fun. And I suppose thinking them or saying them privately isn't doing much harm. But I'd even push back on that. 
I think I've shared this story before about my boss, Diane, from when I worked at a nonprofit in Milwaukee about 20 years ago. We were talking about prospective donors and how we might approach them to ask for a contribution. Someone in our group, and I hope it wasn't me, but I it very well could have been, said, how much do you think we can get from them? Diane paused and said that she would prefer that we use more respectful language when talking about donors, such as, how much do you think they might want to contribute? She said that even talking in private amongst ourselves, we were still establishing a tone and way of speaking that directly influenced how we showed up when a donor was right in front of us. If behind closed doors, we said things like, what do you think they're good for? We start to sound like we're pickpockets, not development professionals. A good rule of thumb is if you wouldn't say something a particular way in front of the person, don't say it that way when they're not around. Practice respect even when no one is listening. So by now, I'm sure you get my point. Our words build our world, and the words we choose to think, say, and share all create a world that is either striving for connection or sowing division. My bottom line invitation to you is to see language as a responsibility. It's a gift we've been given and we've created to communicate and connect with one another. It has power. It has energy. If you believe that perception is reality, then it creates our reality. What reality do you want to create? We can fight against, tackle, or attack something, or we can confront, address, solve, be proactive about, work to improve, or talk more about what we want to create rather than what we want to destroy. Does saying, let's confront the drug crisis and make our schools and streets safe again, have the same charge as the war on drugs? Probably not, and actually most definitely not. But that's because we've gotten so used to the inflammatory, soundbite language that immediately activates strong emotions. Maybe if we normalized more nonviolent connecting language, the violent language would sound outrageous and silly when it was used too casually and have more impact when it was used sparingly and strategically. I attended a workshop given by Patricia Fripp, who is an internationally renowned public speaker, about 10 years ago, and she gave a piece of advice that has stuck with me. She said, every word you say either contributes to your message or distracts from your message. It reminds me a bit of Gandhi's invitation to speak only if it improves upon the silence. Practicing these pieces of advice takes discipline. It means you have to stay on point, be succinct, move the conversation forward, and be strategic and intentional with your words. Poetry is an excellent example of a medium that forces economy and focus. I've tried my hand at poetry over the past few years as a way to practice trimming my words to only what's essential. You wouldn't necessarily be able to tell that from listening to this podcast, but I hope I do a decent job of cutting the fluff and improving on the silence. Here's your call to action. Over the next few days, notice your word choices. This is about raising your awareness. Notice if you use a lot of language that's associated with war or fighting or violence. You might not have violent intent when you speak, and I'm guessing you actually don't, but take note of how often words like fight, attack, battle, hate, and war come up. Notice when they just kind of come out of your mouth as a default. 
and listen and watch for them in the news and on social media. Notice the frequency with which they come up, and ask yourself a few questions. How do I feel when I use or when I hear or read these words? What's another way to express the same idea, but using nonviolent language? How are my words moving a conversation forward and contributing to my message? How are they building connection and trust? What words do I want to practice eliminating from my vocabulary? For instance, in my case, I'm working on replacing triggered with activated, such as, you know, she got triggered when he said, "By the way." Instead, saying she was activated when he said, "By the way," it's a very small change, but it makes a big difference in how I feel when I say it, and I'm guessing it makes a difference in the way a person hears that phrase. It's not easy to make these shifts, at least not if you've been unconsciously going along with the framing that the media often presents to us. And I'm going to take a time out right here because as I crafted that sentence, even then my mind went to the words "inflicts" and "forces" on us before I shifted to "presents to us." Inflict and force are some of those charged words that might be accurate, and they're easily available in my mind. But is that really what it is? Those words imply strong intention, and yes, some of the media might have the intention to force us into a particular frame. One might argue that they all are, but it feels like unnecessarily accusatory language that would distract from my message if I were trying to persuade someone, let's say from the media, to change their ways. So back to acknowledging that this isn't easy. It's not easy. But don't we want to ask more of ourselves and others than to default to fear-based language? Don't we want to hold ourselves to a higher standard? If you're listening to this podcast, I know you do, because I realized this weekend that at its core, how can I say this is about intentional, thoughtful, conscious language that creates a more peaceful, connected world. That's the world I want my words to create, and I am really grateful that you've joined me on that journey, because I have to work on this. We all have to work on this every single day. I find myself thinking and saying words that I know are toxic, that distract from the peace that I want to create for myself and others. I'm talking to myself in this episode as much as I'm talking to you, and I have no expectation that my practice will result in never having violent, destructive thoughts or words. We're setting ourselves up for failure if we have a zero tolerance policy. But even if we're conscious of our word choices and framing, maybe ten or twenty percent more of the time, that has a positive effect, and that effect will build on itself and grow to maybe forty to fifty percent of the time if we're lucky. And that kind of shift is definitely better than no change at all. This is Beth Bilo, and you've been listening to How Can I Say This. You can find past episodes and learn more about the show at howcanisaythis.com. Our podcast producer is Paul Messing, and our theme music is by Brett Anderson. Thank you so much for joining me today, and I invite you to take what you've learned here and use it to speak up, speak out, and speak courageously. 